BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Paving a path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. America in the year 2023 is in the midst of a roiling cold civil war. That is not a term that I use half-heartedly. I'm born on Abraham Lincoln's birthday. I have read more about the Civil War than any other conflict in our history. Well over half a million men on both sides of that terrible conflict paid their lives. And all patriots should pray that this cold Civil War that we are now in never turns hot, God forbid. But how else to look across the landscape? How else to look at wokeism, revanchist cultural leftism? What they are doing across every sector of the country, politically, culturally, from a corporate perspective, from an educational indoctrination perspective, how else to look at that and to conclude otherwise? How do you try to reason with some of these people? You know, we're now in a presidential primary cycle. We're going towards a general election next fall. Each and every election over the last 30, 40 years or so, there's always a debate. Is the proper strategy for a presidential candidate to try to appeal to independents, moderates, swing voters, those proverbial or literal suburban moms, folks like that? Or should you try to fire up the base? And we have a large sample size of polling at this point. Every presidential election, of course, is deeply analyzed. The data is always poured over. And seemingly every new presidential election has a smaller and smaller share of the pie that is actually up for grabs. That's happening on a micro level. It's also happening on a macro level. There are shockingly few states in the country that are even up for grabs anymore. Once upon a time, the nation's two largest swing states, certainly when I was coming up political age in the early 2000s, those two states were Ohio and Florida. I don't think either of those is a swing state anymore. Similarly, other one-time purple states have not gone red, but have gone blue. So you basically have now, I would say, four to six swing states. States like 
Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, maybe North Carolina, Michigan, if you want to add a couple of more, Nevada perhaps as well. That would really be your seven, and that's it, and that is pushing it. The left, of course, has seized upon this reality. They have been much more clever about this than the right. The right, for far too long, seeks to appeal to people that it just will not appeal to. How many times have you seen some idiotic white paper from some dorky neoliberal Republican think tank talk about the moral imperative or the electoral imperatives to go out and talk to voters in jurisdictions, in geographic areas, urban areas, or whatever, trying to target people who are not disproportionately voting for Republicans. And there's nothing wrong with expanding the coalition, of course, as long as you don't lose your actual base. But there, of course, is such thing as diminishing marginal returns and a general notion of ROI or return on investment as well. Again, the left at a much earlier time stopped believing in these pie-in-the-sky dreams, these easily foreseeable and predictable shortcomings. They have adopted a strategy of revving up, firing up the base, and because grassroots activism, going back to the Alinsky community organizer tradition, the very tradition of which the 44th president, Barack Obama, came of age, of course, They are better at grassroots activism. They are better. They are better trained at it. There are any number of examples of this, but I was looking at the Wall Street Journal's editorial section earlier this week, and I yet again saw how the Democrats are currently doing this when it comes to the United States Supreme Court, which is an issue that we discussed on the show much over the past few months. When it comes to the United States Supreme Court, the left is playing with fire, to put it mildly, and is living in a post-truth world. So the journal was talking about this bill that has passed out of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Sheldon Whitehouse, the bloviating idiot from Rhode Island, I think the guy's technically a lawyer. God forbid. I have no idea how the heck that dude managed to graduate from, I think, a top law school. So he, he and Dick Durbin, his addle-brained counterpart from Illinois, have shepherded through this ethics reform package out of the Senate Judiciary Committee. It's all faux ginned up hysteria. You saw outside actors, largely in the media, from organizations like ProPublica, Politico, and others, talk about purported ethics violations or ethical concerns about the conservative justice of the court, namely Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, to a lesser extent. The latest tempest in a teapot is the fact that Justice Alito, who for... What my money is worth is a great unsung hero of the Republic. Clarence Thomas gets a lot of credit for his intellectual consistency and his bravery and the arc of his career. Sam Alito is also a tremendous jurist and, yes, a hero of the Republic. So the latest faux-manufactured controversy here 
is that Sam Alito spoke. He has spoken now numerous times to the Wall Street Journal in on-record interviews, and he actually even published an op-ed under his own name, pushing back against a ProPublica smear job that was directed in his direction. And this is the latest hook for those to say, oh, he's going to have to recuse from various cases next year. This ethics bill that White House and Durbin and the rest of the clown brigade are passing. It would require lower court judges to try to say which cases justices of the Supreme Court can recuse from. Because in the mind of the leftist, there is no distinction whatsoever between law and politics. There's no distinction whatsoever between the rule of law and politics. Everything is political. Everything is manipulable. The process is not just irrelevant. It is stupid to even think about process. That's what Saul Alinsky teaches us, after all, if the ends justify the means. Got to break some eggs to get an omelet, as the 1930s harrowing expression goes. But when it comes to the United States Supreme Court, the Democrats are playing with absolute fire. Do they not conceive of Article 3, which establishes the federal judiciary as a corollary branch to Article 1, the Congress, and Article 2, the executive branch? Sure, there is a very long history of political actors in the first two branches vociferously criticizing Judges and justices. Andrew Jackson famously had his line. He didn't quite say it this way, but he apocryphally said. About the Trail of Tears case, about John Marshall, he apocryphally said, quote, John Marshall has made his decision. Let him enforce it. Abraham Lincoln went even further in his condemnation of Dred Scott, his righteous condemnation of Dred Scott and his righteous refusal to carry it out even further. So criticism of the court and the justices can be entirely fair game. Where it gets deeply, deeply dangerous and bitterly ironic, I might add, for the democracy dies in darkness crowd, the R democracy, capital O, R, capital D democracy, trademark symbol crowd, is that at this point, they are trying nothing less than to destroy one of the three federal branches of the United States government through their incessant threats to pack the court. This garbage ethics bill, this insistence that lower court judges can somehow tell the justices which cases to recuse from? Are you kidding me? What a load of flaming garbage. And by the way, I can't help but note that this full throttle crusade to effectively blot out Article 3 from the United States Constitution, this crusade is happening at the exact same time that the Biden administration and left-wing Democrats are excoriating, are criticizing in the harshest terms possible Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Israel and his coalition for taking prudent measures to reform that out-of-control court. I mean, do you idiots not see your own glaring, scathing hypocrisy? 
Do you care about our democracy or do you not? Again, it makes sense only when you realize that none of this is about substance. None of this is about political theory. None of this is about constitutional theory or anything else other than one thing. Pure power. Power for the left. Power from a spoil systems perspective to the left's various sprawling interest groups. The intersectional coalition, the intersectional rainbow of race, sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, all of it. That is the only way to try to reconcile everything that they are doing. Because they are living in a post-truth world, a post-constitutional world, all of it. But you idiots are playing with fire. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. The Josh Hammer Show. Speaking of post-truth world, let's talk a little bit about Florida. There's been this whole manufactured controversy about Florida's African-American history curriculum. It's social studies framework. Florida's approach to education has been under the microscope for a while now, for the past few years especially since last year and its legislation on critical race theory. Vice President Kamala Harris has been at the center of this Democratic Party effort to tar and feather Florida's curricular language when it comes to African-American history as being no better than John C. Calhoun and the antebellum taint of slavery itself. I'm going to read two passages to you. Here is passage one. Quote, In addition to agricultural work, enslaved people learned specialized trades and worked as painters, carpenters, tailors, musicians, and healers in the North and South. Once free, African Americans used those skills to provide for themselves and others. Bear that in mind, and let's hear quote number two. Here's quote number two. Quote, Examine the various duties and trades performed by slaves, 
For example, agricultural work, painting, carpentry, tailoring, domestic service, blacksmithing, transportation. Clarification one. Instruction includes how slaves developed skills, which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. Did you guys hear a difference in those two? They're saying the exact same thing, aren't they? In the first quote, quote, once free, African-Americans use those skills to provide for themselves. In the second quote, quote, instruction includes how slaves develop skills which could be applied for the personal benefit. It's saying the exact same thing. That despite the moral abomination and evil that was chattel slavery, in some instances, slaves learned trades which they could then use to benefit themselves, whether they were free or perhaps on the side. The reason we did this side-by-side reading, that first quote was from the AP African American History course, which Florida rejected, pushed back on the College Board for various reasons, and Kamala Harris condemned Florida as, quote, extremist for rejecting it. The second quote was the actual quote from Florida, which apparently Florida is, quote, extremist for doing it. Kamala, what the what is your problem? Have you even read this, Kamala Harris? Have you read the actual curricula in question here? Before you decide to change your schedule at the last minute to fly down to Florida and give your bombastic, bloviating speech to fire up your base to try to make yourself relevant again after all the hit pieces have come out against you and how horrible you are to your understaffers and the fact that you can't get anyone on record to comment to you. Was this something that you thought about? Or did some midwit idiot staffer from some third-rate school, fresh out of school, give you a bullet point summary and say, would be a good idea to fly to Florida and criticize Florida. I suspect, Kamala, the question answers itself, that you have not thought this through. Because if you had, you'd realize that this isn't about truth. Again, on the one hand, Florida is supposed to be, quote, extremist for rejecting the AP African American history course that talked about slaves developing skills to provide for themselves and others. On the other hand, Florida is a horrible backwater of racism and bigotry for including one line in a massive curricular framework about, quote, how slaves develop skills, which in some instances could be applied for the personal benefit. So you clearly have not thought this out, Kamala Harris, nor have you, Joe Biden, or any of the other idiots pushing this nonsensical line that is transparently not about Florida, that is transparently not about slavery, that is transparently not about accurately teaching Civil War era history. Again, you and I know exactly what this is about. It is about power. It is about revving up the base, in this case, the Democratic base, leading up to a general election campaign where because the left has no God, they view politics as their God on this earth. They're putting their all into this election and they need to win. 
and they do not care the tactics they use. They do not care how they do it, whether it gets to the procedural mechanisms of ballot harvesting, all that, or whether it comes to this sustained and disgraceful war on truth. They are in a post-truth world. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. So I finally saw Oppenheimer in theaters. First time I've been to a theater, I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, gosh, I mean, it's been over a year and a half or so. I, I mean, very first thing, kind of a reminder to, that it's just nice sometimes to go to the theater with some friends just to take this in. I mean, it really is a very different experience than watching a movie on Netflix on your TV. I mean, it seems like a, like a really dumb because it's so obvious thing to say, but if you don't go to the movies often enough, sometimes you kind of forget just how different and in many ways enjoyable the in-theater experience is. So I went into this with super high expectations. Like many out there, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan. I, I mean, what has he done that is not great? I mean, I think the only movie that Christopher Nolan has really touched that I have seen, which is not great, was Tenet, which came out during COVID in 2020. I, I remember going to see that in theaters. It was kind of right at the peak of COVID. It was when Hollywood was really down for a while. Honestly, just a little weird. Just frankly, just a little too weird. Wanted to like it. Can't say I liked it that much. But everything else that Christopher Nolan has really touched, of course, the Batman trilogy, Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises, The Prestige back in 2006, Inception with Leo DiCaprio in 2010. I saw that movie in theaters twice, if I recall. Interstellar with Matthew McConaughey in 2014. That was that was a ton of fun. And then Dunkirk in 2017. Saw that in theaters, I think, twice as well. I mean, so I went into this with super high expectations, both because of Christopher Nolan and, frankly, just as someone who really enjoys U.S. history. And this, of course, was a historical film about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project and, and the development of the atomic bomb. So the movie lived up to those expectations. It was... I, I, th- I thought it was exceptional. I really did. And I had heard mostly good things from reviewers and from friends. My brother, everyone who had kind of seen this, was encouraging me, me to finally get off my butt and get back to theaters and see it. And it was exceptional. Now, I was on guard because I had heard from some others, not many, but some others, particularly some other conservatives, that the movie was insufficiently tough on communism, specifically communism in mid-20th century America. So J. Robert Oppenheimer was was a lefty, 
that would be an understatement. He did pal around in Communist Party circles in the United States. And after the war, after the war, he subsequently had his security clearance stripped during a 1954 security hearing. They go into all this in the movie. And because of what I had heard, I was really on guard for a lot of these scenes to try to see whether I thought Christopher Nolan was trying to kind of instill any kind of Communist Party sympathy, even kind of socialist sympathy. I, I didn't see it. I genuinely did not detect it. I, I, I respect those who I've read who are saying that this film contains some kind of subliminal or subtle pro-socialism or kind messages. I, I, I didn't see it. I really did. The other thing that I was on guard for was whether or not the film, Christopher Nolan, the actors, all that, would try to put in some subliminal messaging about the actual use of the atomic bomb itself. August 6th, this past Sunday, was the anniversary, a, a grisly anniversary, but the anniversary nonetheless of the use of the atomic bomb that was produced by the Manhattan Project at at Hiroshima. Of course, Nagasaki was subsequently bombed as well, thus bringing an end to World War II. And I, I do not think that the movie did that either. I, I, I really don't. If anything, I thought it was something closely approximating the opposite. So, Robert Oppenheimer, he was a theoretical nuclear physicist. He was he was at Berkeley around the time that the U.S. government recruited him to go down to Los Alamos, New Mexico, to head up the Manhattan Project. He supported, at the time, the building of the atomic bomb. Another thing that's interesting that the movie made me recall is that when the, when the Manhattan Project first started... The, the goal was not necessarily to end the war in Japan. It was actually first started because the Nazis themselves, because Nazi Germany was working towards an atomic weapon. So the actual initial impetus for the Manhattan Project was to get the bomb before the Germans did, not before the Japanese did or subsequently the Soviets or anything like that. And so, you know, there are some scenes in the movie where Oppenheimer, who was of Jewish background, he was not particularly religious Jew, but 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 he was technically Jewish, where he has some comments in the movie, and who knows how historically accurate this was, we're talking about um, uh, Hitler and the Nazis and all that. And so, so, so he did support the use, or, or he supported the development, I should say, of, of the bomb. But because this, he was fundamentally a man of the left, he had profound moral qualms about the bomb, which he, in the movie, expresses over and over and over again. In a way that I, I do not think the film was trying to paint uncharitably his qualms and his skepticism. So I, I just don't really understand that line of criticism either. I do think the movie potentially mischaracterized Harry Truman, who was the president of the United States, who decided to drop the, the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So Truman only appears in one scene in the movie. Try not to give away any, any any spoilers here, but this is not much of a spoiler. I guess close your ears if you're sensitive to that stuff. So Oppenheimer is going into the Oval Office to meet with Truman and the Secretary of Defense after the dropping of the bombs. And his qualms are, are, are evident. He literally says to the President of the United States, to Harry Truman, that he feels like he has blood on his hands, to which Harry Truman takes out a handkerchief and gives it to him or at least starts to give it to him as if to kind of wipe away the blood. And then at the end, when Oppenheimer is 
escorted out of the Oval Office, you can hear in the background Harry Truman saying, don't let that crybaby back in here again. Well, that, that's not quite accurate. Uh, Truman did decide to drop the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but based at least on what I have read, he, he carried a lot of guilt. He carried a lot of guilt and a lot of, and a lot of remorse all the way to the grave, all the way to the time that he died. But in any event, if you have not already done so, really do recommend you go ahead and see the film in theaters. It's super powerful as far as just the visuals, the storytelling, the the audio. It's just a great, great movie-going in-theater experience. But I mentioned earlier that this was the grisly anniversary of the actual dropping of the atomic bomb. And this is an issue that, again, I don't think the film, I don't think Christopher Nolan actually touches on or at least decisively concludes or tries to lead the viewers to conclude was either right or wrong. And I'm happy that Christopher Nolan decided not to weigh in on that because I think reasonable minds can very much disagree on this particular question. But around this time of the year, basically every year, August 6th, early August, various people start debating the use of the atomic bomb. Back when I was leading Newsweek's opinion section, I remember we had these debates of the week. This is about three years ago or so during COVID in 2020. I even did debate of the week around this time in early August about the nuclear arms race and things like that. And it's, it's, it, it is a difficult, difficult subject to talk about because so many innocent lives in Japan were destroyed. So many families were destroyed. So many homes were destroyed there. To this day, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki has a profound effect on the Japanese psyche. Japan, to this day, does not have a a robust military, which, to be clear, in the aftermath of the unspeakable war crimes committed by Imperial Japan, was a good thing. They needed to have their military completely stripped down. But to this day, even with a rising China where Japan has clearly established itself as as a friend of the United States, as, as a friend of the West more broadly, if you will, to this day, the Japanese are deeply, deeply reluctant to rearm and rebuild their military just because of the of the toll of the toll that Hiroshima and Nagasaki took on them. And look, I, I am a Japanophile myself. I've been to Japan multiple times, actually. I've been to Tokyo. I, I've been to Kyoto. I've kind of always had just, just a real appreciation for Japanese culture, Japanese cuisine, just the, just the tranquility of, of Japanese gardens. I'm not sure how else to say it. I've, I've just always had a genuine appreciation, actually, for Japanese culture. I, I suppose, to an extent, the Japanese people themselves as well. I just say to an extent because I don't happen to actually know a ton of Japanese people. But I've enjoyed my interactions when I've been over there. On the other hand, I've also been to Pearl Harbor, which was an incredibly powerful experience that for those who have not been able to make it over to Pearl Harbor outside of Honolulu in Hawaii, I cannot strongly recommend that enough. I was there in December 2017, and I will never forget to this day, I will never forget for the rest of my life, taking that boat to the exhibit that is directly over the USS Arizona that sunk there in Pearl Harbor. And you still smell the oil seeping out of the USS Arizona. 
It's unbelievable. We're 82 years after Pearl Harbor and you still smell the oil seeping in. At the end of the day, I think Truman did the right thing by dropping the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I understand the arguments grounded in just war theory on the other side of the argument. The dropping of those bombs, as horrific as they were, expedited the end of the war probably was the only way that Imperial Japan would have surrendered. Recall, these people were nuts. The Imperial Japanese were actual nut jobs. Totally insane. Like the rape of Nanjing, the kamikaze pilots. Their conduct was on the level of the Nazis 100%. Lesser discussed, but 100% on that level. Furthermore, not only did it save the lives, the dropping of the bombs, on all the Americans who would have stormed the Japanese homeland, but it likely saved the lives of the Japanese itself. Listen to this. Listen to this. This is from Kido Koichi. He later testified, he was one of Imperial Japan's highest wartime officials. Kido Koichi ultimately testified years after the war that in his view, Japan's prompt surrender in August 1945 after the dropping of those bombs prevented 20 million Japanese casualties. That is what he estimates the death toll would have been had there been a full-scale land invasion. So, yes, I defend the bomb. Am I happy about it? No. Was it the right thing? It was. Josh Hammer Show. It's ah! Hammer Time. Go! Judge overseeing Trump documents case criticizes special counsel. Well, of course she criticized the special counsel because special counsel Jack Smith has only one reason for existing right now, which is to prosecute Donald Trump by all means necessary to get Republican voters to rally around the flag and to nominate him because he is probably the only candidate that the senile old fart from Delaware Joe Biden can actually beat in a general election. And yes, to ultimately try to get Donald Trump in jail. That is clearly what is going on here to anyone who is paying any attention whatsoever to what is driving Joe Biden, Merrick Garland and Jack Smith here. You know, it's worth pointing out that the Florida case to me is actually the most interesting. This is the classified documents case because it is certainly the most viable of the three indictments brought thus far when it comes to the actual criminal law and all of that. It's also the only jury pool that could potentially be fair, frankly, when you look at the other two jurisdictions, Alvin Bragg and then Jack Smith in Washington, D.C., being two of the most liberal cities in America. So I'm actually going to be paying closest attention probably to that classified documents case in Florida, probably more than any other. Jack Smith is known to take on tough cases, but he doesn't always win. For those of you who remember, there was a major case involving former Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell, which ended up making its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court before Bob McDonnell ended up being acquitted 
The point is that Jack Smith ended up losing 8-0 to at the Supreme Court in a very high-profile 2014 term. This was a case that was brought by Jack Smith. So, yeah. Jack Smith obviously does not always win. I mean, no prosecutor always wins. That's not how it works. But something to bear in mind as we as we move forward. Here's a full list of Republicans who approved Judge Tanya Chukkan's appointment. She is the judge in Washington, D.C., overseeing the January 6th case, which is the latest indictment brought by special counsel Jack Smith. And there's a, there's a bunch of them. I mean, everyone from Lamar Alexander of Tennessee Dan Coates of Indiana, the late great Tom Coburn of Oklahoma. I mean, wow, even Ted Cruz actually looks like Mike Lee. I mean, she got a ton, a ton of support from across the spectrum there. A little surprise, honestly, to see some of these names like like Ted Cruz and Mike Lee there. I think the name of the game when it comes to judicial nominations just continues to get ever more divisive, ever, ever more partisan. Much of that, frankly, is just inevitable. It is really, it started a very long time ago in 1987 with Bob Bork's defeated Supreme Court nomination. That's really what kind of ushered in the modern era of partisan Supreme Court nominations. Again, it's taken Republicans a long time to catch up here. The left figured out a long time ago. Democrats figured out a long time ago, whether it was Bob Bork in 87, Clarence Thomas in 91, Sam Alito in the early 2000s, and Kavanaugh infamously in 2018. They figured out a long time ago to make judicial nominations actual warfare. Republicans are only slowly, slowly starting to catch up to this because, wow, I mean, Judge Tancha Kenra was approved 95 to 0, my goodness, in June 2014. Hard to imagine that vote would ever go down today. Elon Musk says he may need surgery before his proposed cage match with Mark Zuckerberg. I, I, I cannot believe that this is still a thing. Elon Musk is is quite a bit older than than Mark Zuckerberg. Not that Elon Musk is, is is an old guy. Now he's going to get surgery. I mean, I mean, has Elon Musk thought this through? He's been doing a lot of weird things recently. I mean, this whole Twitter rebrand to X. We're not even calling it Twitter anymore. Uh, beyond dumb. I mean, how do you just throw out? Not that Twitter is like the New York Times or some like vestigial prestigious institution or anything, but you know, it has existed for over 15 years or so. And what you're just going to throw out the term, the logo, all of it overnight? They're not even calling it retweets anymore. Apparently, now it's it's a repost. I mean, soon enough, probably Twitter.com as a URL will be phased out. I assume it'll be X.com, which kind of sounds like a pornographic website. I mean. Weird stuff. And then over the weekend, Elon Musk was tweeting how if you work in a workplace and you've faced workplace consequences, discrimination, being fired, whatever, on the basis of what you put on his platform, send him the legal bills, no limit because he will fund you. Honestly, not the conducts of a stable genius, you might say. But look, Elon Musk has made a heck of a lot more money than I have. So I suppose he kind of knows what he is doing. Bloomberg gun control group spending six figures to pressure Tennessee Republicans to adopt red flag law. Well, I can't imagine how well Mike Bloomberg sponsored gun control money is going to go over there when it gets to Tennessee, which is a very red state, by the way. Now, Nashville itself certainly is blue. Memphis itself is certainly blue. Tennessee as a whole is a very, very red state, much redder than most of these other larger than average red states. I mean, give me a break. Give me a break. I mean, like no chance 
And, and what a just waste of money for someone like Mike Bloomberg, whose presidential campaign, of course, did not go anywhere at all. It's someone who does not fit in particularly well with the Democratic Party. But, you know, speaking of this terrible, horrific school shooting at the Christian school there in the Nashville area in late March, where's the manifesto? I, I think we're still waiting on the manifesto from the crazed transgender lunatic shooter to be released. Last I checked, it was in court. Someone was suing and it was pending before a judge. I have not seen a resolution yet, but we are not going to forget about this. This was four and a half months ago. We need to see that manifesto release. That is where I would like to see more attention placed, not necessarily red flag laws, which are feckless in of dubious constitutionality to begin with. Finally, green madness. Leftist Scottish government cut down 16 million trees to put up wind farms. So Scotland has always, for the most part, been pretty libby. They've typically voted to the left of England. England, at least most traditionally, has been where a lot of the support for the Tories, the Conservative Party, is from. Scotland has always had this kind of weird green almost kind of like Portland, Oregon-esque streak running through it. And I'm I'm painting in very large brushes here. Obviously, there are conservatives who live in Scotland. Obviously, there are liberals who who live in England. But the Scottish Nationalist Party, it's kind of an eclectic political party. There's there's a strong secessionist movement in Scotland where they want to remove themselves from the UK. But a bunch of commies up there, frankly, if we're just being blunt about it. 